every light was extinguished in Hamlet Corpica. Every fire, every lamp, every candle. Even the glimmer of the stars and moon seemed to be dulled by the enveloping black. Each resident was refined to their quarters. Every window had been boarded over that day. Not even the glinting white of eyes could be seen. Bishop Granite, Golden Harvel, and Sayut stood outside in Hamlet's open gardens. Marinet had been tasked that night with ensuring the curfew was kept. And so, three pale faces stared beneath a sky deadened by the darkness of the land below. But the stars still watched. Previously, after Tilly opened a map, the item incinerated, leaving her marked as sacrosanct and ruining their plan to return the item unnoticed. Efair, being a newly honest person, revealed that the prophecy of Morakota Melkil predicted her death, which should happen in six days' time. The trio, knowing there was little they could do, decided to use Tilly's newfound information to investigate a bridge nearby. Chapter 10, Three Faces. The Web, seven days after the departure of the fateful Lakewall caravan. The trio's plan to set out and see this interesting bridge came to fruition. The caravan was stopped for another day, and the reason was now known. The Lady of the Rose had been accused of murdering a political opponent, and in the bishop's own hamlet, no less. Her capture was ordered by the Seydun himself. Ifair had never seen such a strong military presence in a caravan. Reinforcements had clearly ridden from the wall. I can't believe the Lady of the Rose murdered a Harvel in cold blood, Whisper mumbled. Historically, they've had issues, but they usually let their serfs duke it out, not assassinate one another at negotiations. I believe it, Ifair said grimly. I've done contracts for Trian before. She is a decent ruler, but a haunted person. You've done contracts for the Lady of the Rose? Whisper asked. Whoa, who else? Anyone interesting? Ifair gave a sly grin. Who is the worst? Tali asked. And remember, you're an honest person now. Ifair shivered. A vile man. Everything he touches is corrupted. Even his writing was off-putting, cramped, slanted, and maniacal. Ifair grimaced and shook her head. She turned to Tli. Now, back to the task at hand. Tli, we will cover your hands in dirt. The dark loam of the web should obscure those symbols. Tli, why are your hands red and sticky? Do you actually want to know? Tli asked. Ifair paused. 
No, she said. Tilly nodded, took the dirt from Ifair, and scrubbed it on her palms. She held up her hands, the glowing purple symbols now hidden. Let's get going, she said, turning and leading the way. The trio talked as they walked. The stroll through the web was actually quite pleasant. It was a beautiful day, and the falsetto bird song was accompanied by the deep baritones of the massive ancient trees creaking in the cool wind. Whisper complimented this song of nature with a rapid-fire regurgitation of what he'd heard about the road network of the Odrasian Empire and their staggering economy. Ifer poked holes in his theories, and Whisper became defensive. He then began discussing the construction of the roads, which Ifer pointed out was mostly conjecture. Was it slaves? There was no way to know. It could have been one of the powers of Scepter. It could have been some other mystical ability. When he then began to explain the idea being popularized that the road network of the web was not as expansive as previously thought, Tali cut him off. No, it's massive, Tali said. I was shocked to see all the roads. Fine, Whisper huffed. If you want to be difficult, you can forget about me discussing the concept of economic heresy and its rise on how goods travel. He meant this as a threat. Thank you, Tali said. She walked off the roadway, running her hands along the bark of the ancient trees. She turned to Ifair. How does it feel to have a prophecy say you're going to die? She asked. Whisper seemed flabbergasted, but Ifair chuckled. Vexing. How exactly is it I'm supposed to die? That part keeps me up at night. And the idea of my destiny not being my own is also frustrating. If this all is even true, that is. Tali nodded, thoughtfully, looking up at the sky. She shrugged. You could always trick destiny. Die a little sooner. Really say fuck you to the gods. Ifair gave a wholehearted laugh and Whisper tripped over his own feet. I'd rather not, Ifair said. I have you two to look after. Unless there is a particularly appealing reason, I think I'll stay living. Smart, Whisper said. What exactly is the prophecy anyways? Tali asked. It isn't easy to explain, Ifair said. When we set camp tonight, I will try to explain what I understand of it. Both Tali and Whisper were satisfied with this answer, and the trio continued to walk. Odrasian roads were truly a marvel. Large sections of solid stone allow carts to ride smoothly, with interspersed trails of dirt and grass for easy walking. They were wide, allowing multiple carts astride, and the main roads were strangely well-maintained. This was not the case for the branching roads. Most were overgrown and in disarray. The section the trio walked on now had trees growing up from shattered stone. Entire sections were missing. The stone disappeared and only a void of dirt to show where it had once been. At other sections, massive slabs of stone jutted up from the ground, displaced by the roots of the trees growing over hundreds of years. There was a break in the forest, and they stepped out onto a massive plateau. Holy shit, Whisper said. And that would be the bridge, Tilly said. It's better than I anticipated. Unlike the roads leading to it, the bridge was immaculate, beautiful, and perfectly preserved. It was massive, a seemingly impossible structure, but yet it stood, and stood firm. 
The distinctive characteristic was that it did not connect two plateaus, but three. The three roads lifted up into the air and met in a trifecta above the gaping chasm, three sections meeting in the middle. It was covered in intricate pictographs, which Whisper aptly identified as scenes from the Book of the Shale. Ifair noticed Tali walking slowly up the bridge. She looked up and saw what had transfixed the girl. A massive statue stood in the center of the bridge. It depicted a figure wearing loose robes over an impressive set of plate mail. It had three arms and three faces, each pointing out towards a different plateau. What is this? Tali asked in awe. I, uh, I have no idea, Whisper said. Ifair also did not recognize the depictions. The face pointing towards them was disfigured and blackened, as though it had melted. Its hand was outstretched with its finger jutting out accusingly. The face to the east was young, handsome and stoic, its arm holding out a large hammer. And the third face was a mask of sorrow. Its hands were raised in supplication. An ancient church statue, perhaps, Ifair murmured. Something long lost. Tali nodded, but stayed staring, enraptured. Ifair and Whisper poked around the bridge. Ifair couldn't help but look off to the western plateau, the plateau leading the farthest away from the caravan, the way that led deeper into the web, deeper into the strange, dangerous land, away from the profaned hunter, away from the slate, away from the church of deep stone. The wind blew and the earthy smell of the web filled Ifair's nose. She called Tali and whispered to her and told them to sit. This isn't a history lesson, is it? Tali asked. Not exactly, Ifair said. She looked at Tali. You found this bridge quite easily, she said. Tali shrugged and tapped her head. It's all up here. Ifair nodded. She looked off the south end of the bridge again. I think the slate know we stole from them, she said. Why? Whisper asked, panic creeping into his voice. Because we've stopped, Ifair said. Even if it's for the ongoing search, they may have opened the vault now to find a faster route. Ifair paused, her eyes still on the west side of the bridge. She turned back to Tali and Whisper. I want us to run. It makes sense. While the caravan is stopped, we bring supplies here. When the caravan departs, we pretend we are in my carriage, but we are disappearing into the web. And if they chase us, they are going to have a hard time without their maps, Whisper said. It's an edge. This is an edge. I know an edge when I see one. And and Tali knows the maps. Right. Now this is not a decision just for me, Ifair said. There was a sternness in her voice. Consider what I have gotten you into. Do you both want to do this? I think... I think we have to, Whisper said. It is risky to stay, Ifair said, shaking her head. No, Whisper said with a grin. We have to, because now that you've suggested it, Tali is going to drive us both crazy if we don't. The three laughed and looked off to the western plateau. So, it's into the wilds then, Ifair said.
Ashenfall, the Odrosian capital, many years before the departure of the fateful Lakewall caravan. As a child, Keller Kun's pastimes fluctuated between dull and cruel. Tricking other children out of toys and foods was a favorite. Staring at the charred crater on the side of Holy Throne, where the Ashenfall Observatory had once sat, was another, an easy sight from his home atop the Obsidian Towers. These balconies were also perfect for throwing items into the streets far below and watching to see if they struck a passerby. To the relief of his caretakers, however, Keller Kun's favorite hobby was sitting on the gold-marbled floor and staring at the family star tapestry. A star tapestry is a bit of a misnomer, as it is not quite a tapestry, but simply a weave of thread held in place with hooks. The hooks are held by a massive slab of stone, and the whole thing is hung on a wall. The art form is ancient, and is not common. But it is said that these creations were maps of a family's destiny as portrayed in the stars. Star tapestries were common amongst the elite of Odras. Substantial funds were required to do the archival research to create one. Each thread represented either people, events, or ideas. They twisted in and around one another, showing paths, possibilities, destinies. Keller Kun would sit and stare at his thread, a thin black strand. It wove with no others. It started, disappeared beneath the weave, and re-emerged onto another spike. The boy was starless, and it bothered the cruel and egotistical child even then. As he grew, Keller Kun was drawn to politics. He didn't enjoy it, but he was good at it. Having no sympathy, no empathy, no modicum of moral compass, he found the game of politicking easy. Kill, cheat, steal, and lie about it all. Strategy was simply not required if you broke every rule. He used any leverage possible against his opponents, their insecurities, their secrets, their families. Nothing was off limits. And so he climbed. And so he was feared. Those in the upper echelons, the ones who used the rules to keep their power, wanted Keller gone. But this was no easy task. He'd already created enough meaningful alliances that killing him was impossible. So, he was sent to take up the role of the head of the West Shore Observatory. Keller Kun saw this as his deserved post of authority, an advancement. He did not realize it was an exile. The observatory was in shambles, of course. The place had not been used in nearly a century. But Keller was quick to order repairs. Using his normal tactics, he pushed this through. His enemies, satisfied with his removal from their immediate lives, thought nothing of this. Eventually, the massive looking glass used to map the stars was back in operation, and the observatory staffed with scholars and slates. Then, Keller ordered the mapping of the stars to begin anew. He sent many requests to the slate, asking for books of old, anything to do with the stars. Almost all were denied, but the few he did get, he cherished, poring over them. Why was a man, absent of any scholastic ability, so keen on learning the incredibly complex way in which the scholars of old had mapped fate in the stars? Keller retraced old steps, remapping the stars and scribbling his findings in volumes of books, his writing cramped, slanted, and maniacal. 
Aside from being confusing, there was nothing wrong with his current occupation. It was what he had been told to do, and what could possibly be the harm in redoing work that had been done hundreds of years ago. So, the Odrosian elite left Kellerkun to search the stars. And search the stars he did. But the reason for his search was selfishness. He searched for that black thread that had baffled and vexed him as a child. His thread. Where was his destiny? His foretold greatness? In his search, he learned of the Lakewall caravan. His threads did not intertwine with it, but it came so near. He requested books regarding this, books that had long been lost in the archives. And then there were whispers in the halls of holy thrones, and words that had not been uttered in decades were uttered. The cult of the guiding stars had lived in the shadows for a long time now. Their numbers were few, but this gave them a renewed hope. And so, the stars visited the priest. Kellerkun was startled by the tall man standing in the entryway of the observatory. He wore red armor and stood erect and intent. His hand rested casually on the hilt of his sword. His eyes, sharp and penetrating, meandered across the room, but seemed to glean every detail. His gaze finally landed on Keller Kun, and his lips tightened into resolve and a smile. Keller was about to shout at this pompous man before noticing the crest on his breastplate. This was a man Keller had never had the pleasure of meeting in person before, but did consider a worthy adversary. Cardinal of War, Keller said, standing and smiling widely. What can I do for you? The Cardinal of War did not look at Keller when he spoke, but instead examined the looking glass. I've heard you're mapping the stars anew. I'm doing a stupendous job of it, Keller responded. And futile, the Cardinal said, raising an eyebrow. Wasn't the whole of the sky mapped before the long silence? Those records are all in Holy Throne. And impossible to access, griped Keller Kun. The cardinal stared at Keller, a faint smile still on his lips. Yes, they are Keller. Some things found in the stars are so important, so crucial to the survival of this empire, that they are given special treatment. The cardinal squinted and continued slowly. Keller, have you heard of the guiding stars? Keller frowned an old cult. They were called rats by Cesamara during the Inquisition, before he burned them all, that is. I used to stare at their observatory as a child. I must admit I found their mission admirable, using the old prophecies of the stars to ensure the proper paths were chosen. Yes, Cesamara was not fond, but even old Cesamara should have known that if you want to kill a nest of rats... You have to kill us all. We are not a myth, Keller, and not a cult. Keller Kun's eyes widened. He had only just met the second most powerful person in Odras, and they were already confessing to him their involvement in a secret society long thought dead. The Cardinal continued, We are a necessary force to ensure Odras remains secure. The stars tell us much about ourselves. I wouldn't know about that. Keller said bitterly. The cardinal stepped forward, putting his large hand on Keller's shoulder. Do not despair, young priest. Do you know what it means to be starless? 
I am destined for nothing, Keller mumbled. No, you are destined for anything, the Cardinal said. Your destiny is your own. Keller looked up. His eyes shone greedily. The Cardinal patted his hand on Keller's shoulder again. This is why I come to you, Keller. The guiding stars remain strong. We work in the shadows, using our knowledge to direct the course of history. But we are in need of help, Keller. Can we count on you? What do you need me to do? Keller asked. You will need to join us. Become a member of the guiding stars, the cardinal said. He paused. And we will need you to take the position of Bishop of Lakewall. Hamlet Corpica, three days after the departure of the fateful Lakewall caravan. In the pitch black of Hamlet Corpica, something stirred. Granite, Sayut, and Golm stood beside a pile of bags in the self-inflicted dark. No accidents this time, right? The job will be done completely, Bishop Granite said. Golm frowned. They'll do the job. Granite leered at Golm, now turning to fully face the ruler of Northern Lakewall. Are you scared, Golm? Bishop asked with a grin. Golm stood up straighter, his face twisting in anger and indignation. He had the look of a man who has seen death and knows he can never explain it to another. Coincidentally, it was the same look on Sayut's face. You don't know the forces you're dealing with, Granite. They aren't normal. Once this is done... It's done. If you drown in regret when your head hits the pillow, there is no surfacing from what you have plunged into. I regret nothing, Granite said, and the only forces underestimated are my own. Gon looked uneasily at Sayut. The gray eyes dropped his eyes and shivered in the cold. In the pitch black of Hamlet Corpica, something stirred. A sweet fragrance and the feeling of static electricity filled the air. They're here, Sayut whispered. The darkness swirled, at first imperceptible, but then what seemed to be the dull glinting of stars off of surfaces became a tempest of gold and silver and dark blue. The colors intensified, and then stilled. The five stood in the darkness, the gold of their previous payments gleaming in the pale moon. They were clothed head to toe in dark blue robes, the blue of the crushing depths of the ocean, and they were adorned with elaborate golden trim, chains, and ornaments. One of the five stepped forward and raised its head. A golden mask of indescribable shape stared out at granite, For the first time, Granite seemed nervous. The five have come to complete your contract. First payment, then the names. Granite was frozen, his eyes widening. Golm, his face paler than the moon, poked him in the ribs. Bishop, he said. Granite snapped out of his daze and looked around. Yes, yes, the payment, the bags. Granite, Golm, and Sayut began their task. The bags were piled in the midst of the five. 
Golden masks watched from beneath Stygian hoods. Golden set the last one down, pulled out a small dagger, and sliced it open. Riches poured out. Gold, silver, jewels, and coins. Would you like an accounting? Golden said, bowing his head. No. Well, Granite said, there's the payment. Now, which of you needs the names? He now held out a slim book. One of the five stepped forward. They held an unlit censer in one hand and wore a metal box on their back. They took the book from Granite and opened it. The interior looked like a strange spiderweb of raised lines. They swirled through each page. The being touched its fingers to the lines. Its hands were incorporeal, a starless sky in coherent form. They seemed to flicker in and out of reality. Its fingers traced through the lines, making sharp, jarring turns as it read them. All these names? It asked. All of them, Granite responded. Another of the five now stepped forward. In one hand, it held a piece of parchment. In the other, it held a black quill that came to a razor-sharp edge. Granite took the quill and looked at it nervously. Golm had told him repeatedly what he would need to do next, but he still hesitated. Finally, he brought it down and pricked his own finger, letting the blood well up, filling the quill. He scribbled his name on the sheet, cramped, slanting, and maniacal. He handed the parchment back. The bean took it and retreated into its group. It's done, Granite asked, sucking his finger. It's done, the leader replied. That wasn't so bad, and so convenient. If I'd known there were assassins like this, I would have never used those rabble. The other four figures now circled around the bags containing the payment. The leader stayed facing Granite, its eyeless face lingering. Granite stepped forward, defiantly jutting his chin out. This attempt at resolve was undercut by the fact he was sucking his pricked finger like a child. Speak no ill of our flock. We are no assassins, but priests. We are the emissaries of contracted death. Do you not fear death, Kellogg? It so happens I do not, Granite said, grinning. The leader lingered on Granite for a moment longer before turning its back on him. It joined hands with the others, completing the circle around the payment. You should, Kellercon. You should. There is much you do not know, so there is much you do not fear. I pray for all our sakes you learn soon. You must teach him, Chaos Walker. If you demand to serve our sanctuary, you must play your part. The darkness swirled anew, and the gold and dark of the five intertwined together, a renewed vortex that spun, grew faint, and then was gone. Only the inky blackness of the night remained. Granite turned. Sayut now seemed on the verge of tears. Granite leered at him. Don't worry, Grey Eyes. There is nothing you can teach me. Come, let us drink. We have dealt with the gods, and stage one is almost complete. Ifair, Whisper, and Tali found themselves strangely upbeat despite their situation. 
They took turns returning to the caravan, gathering specific supplies and returning it to the bridge. The three-faced statue watched them passively as they executed their plan, and it watched them when they decided to open the other stolen items. What was the worst that could happen? They'd ruined their first plan, so why not open the items, take their chances? The worst-case scenario was that Tali got to glean some of the information. Tali explained how she'd opened the first map, explained the code she'd seen in the threads. Whisper listened, nodding along. Finally, he said, Oh, and picked up one of the maps. He had the deterrent off in minutes. They unfurled the map. Whisper whistled and patted Tali on the back. You were right. That is expansive. Quickly now, Ifair said. They all looked over the map, taking in as much as they could in fear that it would ignite the same as the previous had. There was no ignition this time. Whisper looked at his palms and then held them up. They were bare. I don't understand why Tali was cursed with those symbols, nor why that map combusted, Ifair said grimly. Hubris, Tali responded. They now opened a book. Ifair leafed through it, seeming satisfied with the contents. This will take time to read. I shall return to it during the rests on our journey, she said. They made the decision to leave the other books and the final map for later. They were almost ready to disappear into the wilds. There was the final book, the one stolen by accident, which was still in Ifair's carriage, and a few supplies that Ifair had to retrieve. Ifair stood and stretched. There is a final task, she said. I, of course, have other students to attend to. Almost all are traveling with servants sent by their parents to ease their passage, but they are still under my purview. Thankfully, I believe Ricky Slar could be persuaded to take this role, if the price is right. Ifair looked from Tali and Whisper to the three-faced statue to the dark woods. She opened her mouth as though to speak, but stopped. She smiled at the children. I'll be back, she said, and headed towards the caravan. Ricky Slar drove a hard bargain. His immaculate powers of observation were at work, and it was clear he'd figured out that something was amiss. He did not seem to know exactly what, though. Ifair was willing to pay for his silence. He gladly accepted the chunk of starred opal. I will take great care of these burgeoning young minds, Ricky Slar said with a grin. As Ifair was walking away, he called out her name. She turned. He tipped his wide-brimmed hat. Remember what I taught you, and forget it all, he said. Ifair smiled and set out on her final task. The smells of the caravan wafted gently. Manure, spices, forest, food. A strange mix, but now so familiar to her. A hollow feeling gripped her chest as she realized she would miss them. She'd spent so much of her adult life in these caravans, and this was probably the last. So she took her time. She avoided the many wardens milling about, while trying not to look suspicious, and got herself a simple skewer of spiced fish and fermented herbs, a popular dish in Odras. She watched the various lowlifes she'd watched with Whisper just the day before, the cut purses, the strange lady wandering around dressed all in white, and the various men who were clearly working for Bishop Granite. 
she chuckled. Mages and church officials who also traveled often nodded at Ifer as she passed and she nodded back. Finally, she arrived at her carriage, the sky red from the setting sun. She opened the door and stepped inside for the last time. She gathered the remaining supplies. She paused, looked around, and sighed. She closed her eyes and prepared for the final task. She picked up the last stolen book, the book Whisper had taken by accident. She was not being dishonest. She would tell them what she'd done, but intuition told her she had to open this book in private. She knew this type of book. It was called a thread study. Before the long silence, when it was common that star tapestries were made, these were the books used to record the study of the stars, to record the information that would be laid out in this tapestry, to record a specific series of fates. Ifair had a strange suspicion that this volume being in the rolling vault was no mistake. She could feel it. It felt purposeful. It felt like the gods themselves knew something. She removed the deterrent, carefully moving each silver thread like Tali had explained until the book was freed from the tangle. She opened the book and was greeted by a familiar, stomach-churning phrase. Marcoda Melkil. She smiled grimly to herself. Of course. But her smile faded. The writing was familiar. It was cramped, slanting, and maniacal. She urgently flipped through the whole book. Every margin was filled with notes from Bishop Granite. The notes were rambling. Many were about the Lake Wall Caravan and multiple diatribes about being starless. Nothing seemed directly malicious, but Ifair felt nauseous. Then she noticed the names. There were so many names, seemingly prophecies for various people in the caravan. She didn't need to look at what it said about her. But what did it say about Whisper and Tali? Sure enough, she found Whisper's name. She sighed a sigh of relief. Normal threads, theoretical directions in life, occupations, love interests, minor events, nothing set in stone. She was also relieved when she could not immediately find Tali's name. But her heart sank when she found it on the last page. It was underlined, and beside it were only three notes. Ifair read, Orphan. She leaves the wall, and they all die. She leaves the wall, and lives in captivity and sorrow. The book ignited in Ifair's hand, and she stumbled back. She felt dizzy. She grasped at the handle of her carriage door, now feeling claustrophobic. Had she read right? Had those words been about Tali? She leaves the wall and lives in captivity and sorrow? Ifair stumbled out of the carriage, the supplies forgotten. She began to run. She had to get back. There were so many wardens. There were so many people all around. There was so much happening. She had to get to Tali. It was her sole focus. Everything else faded in her mind and in reality. Normally, she would have noticed. Had it not been for this small lapse, they never would have stood a chance, not against Ifair of the Seventh Bond. They never would have stood a chance. I could not tell you if the gods had known, but I can tell you that the stars watched.
Lee and Whisper sat in the cool night air of the web. Whisper had made a small fire, but Talee sat in the cold beneath the three-faced statue. She sat at its feet, above her the burnt and disfigured face pointing in the direction of the caravan. She sat with her chin on her knees, staring in the direction Ifair had left. The melted and blackened face stared with her. The other two faces turned away. The sun had long set and the moon had long risen. We should get some rest, Whisper said, putting his hand on Talee's shoulder. She'll be back. We have to trust her. I know, Talee said. She'll be back, even if I have to drag her back myself. Talee and Whisper sat beneath the three-faced statue, staring out into the dark of the web and waiting for Ifair. And the stars waited for them. Thank you for listening. Everything you hear in this show is created by me, Adam Ganong. Every word written, every note played. If the work I am doing here has brought you some joy, some comfort, some entertainment, please consider supporting a solo creator on Patreon. Link to that is in the show notes down below. The Stone Singer Chronicles art is by Peter Bartel. Thank you, Peter. There is a link to his website in the show notes. A special thanks to my wife, Jenna Noor, and my friend, Destructobot. Join the Stonesinger Chronicles Discord to get extra information about the show and officially earn your rank as the Mage of the Third Bond. Again, link to that in the show notes down below. All right, and until next time. <laughs>